Welcome to Built to Play, your weekly dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, the Japanese Beethoven has been living a lie, and Nintendoom draws ever closer. Also, Amazon eats up Double Helix, Square Enix, and Disney's share financial results. And don't make fun of Metal Gear, it just got out of the pool. Plus, our interviews this week are about passion. We have Jason Oda talking about the adventure before his afterlife game. And we're talking about another ending to Mass Effect 3, the game that nearly burned down the internet. But first, the composer of Resident Evil is a fraud worthy of the series he's working on. So, wait, what's up with Mamoru uh, Samurogochi? So, Mr. Samurogochi is a beloved Japanese composer known for be, for uh, going deaf about 15 years ago and, com- and uh, continuing to compose some very beloved soundtracks and songs to games and all kinds of things. Uh, turns out he's not deaf. Or a composer. Well, he's he he could compose things, but he hasn't composed most of his things. Most of his things, presumably in the last fifteen years. Uh, the Resident Evil and Onimusha composer lost his hearing in nineteen ninety nine uh, while composing the Onimusha soundtrack, uh, but went on to compose the his uh, famous uh, Hiroshima Symphony, which was uh, in kind of in memoriam to Hiroshima and was very much associated with the um, Japanese tsunamis. Yes, uh, they, it was played a lot. Of, uh, I think on on television at that time. It was considered a very patriotic in a country that's not very patriotic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and it was he was well renowned for it. And in fact, that's probably how most people in Japan know about him beyond um, the his, games. Yeah, his video game work. His work on some Capcom games. Um, but it uh, turns out he's been having his music ghostwritten for years. Takashi Nigaka, Nigaki 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 Takashi Nigaki, his ghostwriter, um, is. A professor at the Toho Gakuen School of Music, a prestigious music academy in Japan. And um, he also says that he never believed that Samuragochi was actually deaf. According to him, he would play his compositions for Samuragochi, and then they would carry on normal conversations as if he wasn't deaf. So... Now, his lawyers have official documentation detailing his hearing impairment and... So, so the, death make, the fact that he's deaf is probably up in the air, um, but the ghostwriting isn't. He's, you can very clearly attribute a lot of his work, including the most recent theme to uh, the Japanese figure skater Daisuke Takahashi, and who uh, said he'd be he said he'd be going to an original composition by Samurai but turns out. Uh, that's not true. It'd be Nika- Nigaki. Yeah, Takashi says he has no idea what is going on be- between Nigaki and Samuragochi, but he will continue to uh, skate to that song in Sochi. Uh, Nigaki has told reporters that uh, he, over the past 18 years, he's been paid about 7 million yen, about $69,000, to write more than 20 pieces. According to Nigaki, he wanted out of a deception, but Samuragochi said he'd commit suicide if he was revealed as a fraud. Um, many called Samuragochi d- due to his deafness. Uh, the Japanese Beethoven. Yeah, yeah. So, and he played that part to a hilt, comparing his perfect pitch was all he needed to compose, and losing um, his hearing was a gift from God. Uh, as you can tell, it may not have been quite. <laughs> yeah. uh, Samuragochi has admitted that his music is ghost-written, but has yet to respond directly to Nigaki's allegations. Uh, according to Nigaki, the two have not met since December 15th of last year. When uh, Nigaki revealed that he wanted to go public, I I find this just so incredibly amusing, just because it's rare that we have people who lay on the lies this heavy. I mean, yeah, this guy was literally living in a tangled web of lies. I, I it might be extreme to if his hearing did turn out to be real and all of this was just a creative persona. But at the very least, he hasn't actually killed himself like he promised he would. That's true. Um, uh, to be fair, if you, I mean, I don't know if you've seen a picture of this man. He looks exactly like Tenobu Itagaki, the man behind Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, yeah, he does. So I have a feeling that he's actually Itagaki in this guy's. I have a feeling <laughs> that's the final lie. To be fair, he did try to burn Teen Ninja on his way out, it looked like. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was living a double life. I think Itagaki has actually been buying this whole time and has been paying Miyamoto to design all of his games. <laughs> <laughs> this is where Miyamoto lets his violent side out. Speaking of Nintendo. Now, speaking of Nintendo, it looks like we're considering our series on the Nintendo Doomsday Clock as uh, we have share buybacks. 
operating systems and mergers. Nintendo says it is considered a unified unified OS and development environment for their upcoming consoles, which I say about time. Yeah, that seems like a really good idea. I mean, even Sony, to be fair, hasn't actually gotten this down yet. They do have unified accounts and shops, but Vita and PS4 and PS3 don't run on the same architecture whatsoever. But they communicate. Yeah. Which is important. Which is important. And the 3DS and the Wii U do not. The next handheld and home console Nintendo makes may have a single OS shared across the two, along with any future consoles. Um, Iwata uh, said an investment call, investors call, uh, if the transition of software from platform to platform can be made simpler, this will help solve the problem of game shortages in the launch periods of new platforms, which I don't actually think was a problem with the Wii U, considering they didn't. They didn't have any games at all. Yeah, and same with the 3DS. I mean, those I mean, those launch games weren't great either. I don't think those were flying up the shelf. I think the issue being that he's thinking that we could, basically, we could port a bunch of Wii U games to the new console, we could port a bunch of 3DS games to the new handheld, and vice versa, just to keep them shored up at the beginning. But I feel like all of Nintendo's consoles are backwards compatible anyway. They always provide something. I mean, the Wii U is backwards compatible. The Wii, you can even use the same Yeah, it's always backwards compatible one generation. So I have a, feel, I have a feeling it's mostly stuff like porting Wii games to the next console or porting, you know, Game Boy Advance games or DS games to the next console, stuff like that. It could also be in the case of something like, um, wor- if they are worried about kind of their, their continuing legacy, if they have to scrap a console at some point, then it might be easier to say, oh, we can transfer these games elsewhere. The hardware may not necessarily be right. a big concern. And I think also part of it might be for virtual console. In that Nintendo's always kind of Nintendo built the Wii from the ground up as an emulation machine, but according to uh, Emulation Masters M2, who do a lot of Sega emulation, Virtual Console emulation, um, anything that isn't a Game Boy, a Game Gear, or the NES is really hard to emulate on the 3DS, and that's just because of like very specific hardware problems. Uh, But having some sort of universal, you know, development environment might kind of help that and. Really, kind of put put back the push to you know open the stopper on what's been stopping Virtual Console on on systems that aren't the Wii over the years. And I mean, like, let's consider what the Wii U has right now for backwards compatibility, which is basically a sub, like a tiny Wii inside of right. the Wii U, in which you have to log in to the Wii and you have, you to, have to run it in Wii mode. Yeah, and have an entirely separate Virtual Console. If you have any games on your Wii Virtual Console, those aren't compatible with the Wii U. Some vir- of them are only if they've released them again on Wii U Virtual Console, and then you need to pay like 30 cents to transfer them over. Yeah, which is a weird situation and feels like having a box within a box. But uh, Meanwhile. Another thing they're trying to do is uh, to shore up some stock market value by buying back some of its shares. Um, The family of former Nintendo president and insane cool guy, um, Hiroshi Yamauchi... You will be missed. (laughs) ...has sold off many of their shares in the company. Um, The 9.5 million shares brought back... um, that they were brought back um, represent uh, 7.43% of the outstanding stock and are valued about 1.1 billion yen. That's a lot of money. But, uh, I mean, Nintendo has this kind of cash. It's yeah. the thing they have on yeah. them. I mean, it's it's a dent in the cash they have in the bank. They're $10 billion as in, in liquid assets. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a business person. I'm not really clear on what they want to do with this stock. I don't know if it's necessarily it's a repopulation, like push it out to new shareholders or keep it on themselves for a rainy day. Uh, but I think it is proof that Nintendo definitely has money to burn if they just want to buy a 1, billion, 1 billion yen worth of stock. Yeah, at least it, and it, I think they're trying to go for stability. I mean, Nintendo stock has been so up and down recently that a lot of their main issues have been kind of releasing a piece of news and all of a sudden their stock value drops suddenly mm-hmm. and then they have to rely on like very slow recoveries to pick them back up again. I mean, they had their biggest shock with the most recent Ryu in a long time. Yeah. Um, it's That makes sense. I think, I guess, owning it will probably kind of keep value stable and keep them out of the Nintendo news. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of of someone making moves, though, we're talking about Amazon has finally basically confirmed they're moving into the video game business. Yes, it is, enough, it is a big official statement with them um, hitching their wagon to Double Helix. The developers of the new Killer Instinct and the upcoming Strider reboot have uh, just been bought by Amazon. I, it's an interesting choice, considering that Double Helix has been basically making uh, garbage and... Uh, Killer Instinct. Yeah, um, um, I think their previous games after before Killer Instinct were G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra, Green Lantern, The Martian Manhunters, and Battleship the Movie the Game. Battleship the Game the Movie the Game. 
I mean, Amazon is planning to launch a Android-based console to sell for less than $300. We haven't heard too much news about this. I mean, it would make sense that they'd want to have a game developer to have a console to have uh, something on board. board. But Killer Instinct, I mean, Killer Instinct is a multi-season game. Would they still be working on it? While they're bought by Amazon. Yeah, I mean, that thing is what we promised DLC, and most of it is run on microtransactions and continued kind of uh, negotiations. I wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft has just taken control of the server-side stuff or whatever. I mean, they basically own the Killer Instinct IP. I mean, Double Helix was only brought in to work on the project, and it was one of those things that was tooted to help work with the Microsoft cloud. Right. So... I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of infrastructure is just on Microsoft's side. Sure, but I think the development stuff is on their well, side. Yeah. And, and people seem to really like that Killer Instinct. I mean, it's it's going to be at Evo this year. I mean, it's weird that they had that much of a success with a Killer Instinct game, but... A game that is not that good. <laughs> you know what? If people like it, maybe there's something to it. But sure. still, it just seems like an interesting choice for Amazon to pick up. I mean, there's a ton of independent studios on the market, especially if they want to get something. And tons of independent studios who have made smaller games, like something you might want on an Android I think uh, console. part of what it is that Double Helix is kind of a lot of veterans. These are people from Shiny Entertainment and Plan 9, I believe. Yeah. And these are people who've been working on PC games for a long time. They made, uh, you know, Shiny Entertainment did Earthworm Jim and a lot of kind of PlayStation uh, adventure games. I, I think what it is that they're looking for people with industry experience. Who can, who can kind of weather these kinds of storms and, and, and can turn out, a, you know, a successful, reliable product. Something just like flexibility. Someone... Exactly. And, and I think they're also very close to their um, one of their offices in Irvine, California, which might be part of the deal. Yeah, that would probably make things convenient. Um, the I mean, another game that's been in the work for a while is Strider, um, which has yet to be released. It's being it's a Capcom thing, but it's um, it's coming out uh, this month actually. They yeah, announced, they announced it the same day as the Amazon acquisition, so I guess they're probably trying to get that out the door. The reviews seem to early previews seem to be kind of unfavorable. We haven't seen any big reviews of it yet. Um, it's. I don't know. We we double helix has been such a hit and miss, 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 and miss, 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 miss. One hit and a billion miss studio. That um, it's kind of hard to say what they're going to be doing. I mean, battleship, battleship of the, the game, game, the, the movie, movie the game. game was kind of incredible in <laughs> in what they they managed to make a competent game out of a really dumb premise. Um. Well, it was made, still like made Call of Duty. Rushed. Yeah, <laughs> they just made Call of Duty. Well, I made Call of Duty where you could play Battleship. Yeah, um, which is an improvement. Uh, I thought you were going to say it's amazing that they made a game out of a movie out of a game. Um, <laughs> but then I remember that the Lego, the Lego the movie game is ba- is based is based on a movie based on toys while also being based on other games based on toys based on movies. Yep, it that that game has Batman. Um, it's got Will Arnett as Batman. <laughs> uh, we don't know how much money traded hands. In um in this deal, but uh, it definitely shows that Amazon's getting serious about this stuff. So I'd I'd expect us to see Amazon buying up a lot of other independent developers, or at least up. like making clear claims as to what they're going to be doing. They've they've kind of stated their intentions, and this is making those intentions clear. Yeah, but uh, it'd be nice to see at least what kind of games they're looking for. I mean, with the Ouya, which is another Android console that hasn't been doing as well, um, they mostly kind of go for smaller indie developers. Um, who are making niche games that can kind of appear on the PC or occasionally on tablets or on phones, Mm -hmm. um, but happen to work better with a controller. Um, If Amazon is looking for Double Helix, that means they're looking for something closer to a triple... Triple A title. Yeah, Yeah. you're looking... I mean, a a, a $300 ceiling for the console, which I imagine means it'll be about $300. You're looking at something at about Wii U level. Yeah. which, Which is an interesting choice considering how the Wii U has not fared terribly well. This is an increasingly crowded market. I wouldn't be surprised if what Amazon is building is a kind of an all-in-one box, kind of like what the PS3 is now or the Amazon TV is tooted to be or kind of like Veroku. All-in-one box plus games that has Netflix, has TV, has all these other options plus... But they still want to develop exclusive games for this box because if they're making a $300 Android console that's about, again, let's say Wii U level, these games are not going to be playable on any other Android device. Yeah, yeah, it's it's... Strange. I mean, Amazon's... I don't think any, you're going to see anybody develop for this thing who isn't owned by Amazon. 
I mean, well, hope, if it gains traction, you'll right. you'll start to see people develop for it. And if um, the Ouya starts to gain traction, I think there would be enough people on Android. Right. But the thing, I mean, Ouya, I mean, this thing would be able to play anything on the Android store. But I mean, you can make things exclusively for Ouya, but those are still, like you said, playable on PC and tablets. Mm. This would be something that this is like a big, solid game that really is going to be playable on any other kind of device. I have a feeling whatever they're doing, they're following one of two trends. It's either they're going for a tablet or they're going for a set-top box. Yeah. And it's going to be whatever, um, whatever's the safest for them. Mm-hmm. But um, speaking of safety, <laughs> by no means. By no means. Um, it looks, it looks like Ground Zeroes really, uh, they're really playing it safe. I think is what they're doing <laughs> um, because it looks like that game is at most something like four hours. Yeah, according to Game Informer magazine, Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes is um, it, they played it for four hours. And they said that they beat the story in two and only got started with most of the side missions in the other two hours they played the game. So the actual main mission is two hours. Two hours long, hard limit. And how much is this? Anywhere from twenty to forty dollars, depending on how you buy it. So it's kind. It's twenty dollars for PS3 and and, and Xbox, Xbox 360 digital. digital. Thirty for those consoles physical. Xbox One and PS4 digital. Forty for Xbox One and PS4 physical. That is a fantastic lineup of tiers, but, I mean, what is it? Why is this game only four hours? What is it supposed to be? So Ground Zeroes is a prologue to Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, which will be coming out next year. Uh, Ground Zeroes is a single mission called Ground Zeroes, uh, packaged as its own game, which means, and again, it's a prologue of an unfinished game. So you're buying a beta. It's a you're buying a beta, and you're buying kind like not much content in that beta. It's not like this is an early access where yeah, it's not like Rust or something where yeah. you're paying for this game and watching it evolve. You are paying. That's the thing. You pay. I don't know how much Rust costs right now, but you're paying for Rust. But you get to keep playing this same Rust as it evolves and becomes bigger and bigger. This is basically a promo piece of content that other people have done for cheaper. This um, is something that you know. People give away for free. Yeah, yeah. The so according to Hideo Kojima, it's supposed to be like an old school arcade game. You go for the score and you replay over and over again. Yes, but as I he, think that's more of an excuse. Yeah, as he says, Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes includes all, the main missions alongside five side ops. All missions include elements such as trial record, where players compete each other, compete against each other online. This is not a linear game like the past. So Metal Gear has leaderboards. I don't see how that helps. I, yeah. Why does who plays Metal Gear for the leaderboards? No one plays. There's no Peace Walker had scores. Nobody cared. They were irrelevant. the The thing that gets me about this, and and first of all, like we like said, it's a beta. It, people have done this for free. The only other thing we can I can think of off the top of my head is like Dead Rising Two off the record case zero, which is a prologue, but that was like five dollars. Yeah. Yeah. No. The um. I said we other companies have released kind of prologues. We've seen Gran Turismo Four, uh, Five Prologue, prologue. Um, but these games were fairly cheap, and there was really only one format for them. You weren't paying twenty or thirty or forty dollars. I'm really loving that price tiering system, but God, do it for th- something I care about. Yeah, no, it's like whoever is the sucker who pays forty full dollars for two hours of content. I mean, I wish them luck, but I really hope that this information is being clear. Because I like someone who goes out to the store and buys this for forty bucks is seriously um, not yeah. getting their money's worth. Oh yeah, and I think we're not people who really harp on the length of games a lot. Like I really loved Journey or Brothers, which I paid fifteen dollars for each, and they were each maybe three hours long, four hours long at most. But those were new, innovative experiences. But the most important thing is that they were complete experiences. I was not expecting to pay more down the line for more of this game. It they were, and in a sense, they were also like. They were fairly revolutionary experiences in how they how they did control, how they did story. This is, like I said, it's a promo. Like right. we're paying for just a little bit of content before the actual game comes out. Right. Uh, Kojima has said multiple times that the full Metal Gear Solid Five is hundreds of times larger than Ground Zeroes. So it's, it's not only is it incomplete now, it's also minuscule. Uh, now. What it looks like is that Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain isn't going to come out for a while now. Um, the uh, we wouldn't it wouldn't be they're supposed to come out next year, but we'll see what happens. I doubt it, it. Yeah, I doubt it. The this is what most likely just supposed to kind of get up support and hopefully get tide us over. Yeah, um, I really feel like this is something to do with ballooning budgets. Yeah, I really feel like. 
they can't actually charge a hundred dollar MSRP, so they want to effectively charge a hundred dollar MSRP by asking you to pay forty dollars for Ground Zeroes and sixty dollars for Phantom Pain. I mean, it'd be interesting if they they released this as kind of like an episodic game and then said, "Hey, um, you pay twenty bucks per episode." I mean, no one would buy that because it's no. insane. But I mean, at least it would be less um, convoluted than or at just least saying, tell, or at least ask me to pay sixty dollars for Ground Zeroes now and deliver Phantom Pain later later for free after I purchase that. Yeah, or like there's got to be something to to give you to tide us over that is not a twenty dollar essentially a $20 demo. Yeah, yeah. And again, like, people do this for free. Bravely Default is 10 hours of original content in its demo, and it is free as a bird. I mean, which is insane. I mean, to be fair, that's a standout. That's fantastic. But let's go with Capcom's uh, Dead Rising 2. That was a great promo, and in fact, people played that promo and then decided that, yeah, I'm picking up this game because this promo is so much fun. That was how I got into it. But the... um, that was like at most, at its most expensive, was something like ten bucks. Right, and and I feel like that's a really important thing. Though, it's like I I might be willing to pay ten dollars for this. I might. Mm-hmm. Twenty is getting a little rich for my blood, especially when that is twenty dollars is what I expect to pay for a used game or a high end indie game, yeah. and I'm getting an incomplete experience. Forty dollars is nuts. For, yeah, forty dollars is you're a sucker if you pay that. Speaking of nuts, Square Enix is having a grand old time um, with uh, with. With actually being back in the black, they've uh, it's it's kind of nuts that they managed to actually get m- some money for a change. But and what's crazier is where it came from. Oh, you'd you'd actually be surprised um, if so, you as so long as you worked in Square Enix and didn't see this coming a mile away. Right. Um, so net co- net income is up to five point two billion yen or fifty one million dollars from a loss of five point seven billion yen, fifty six million dollars in the same over the same period last year. Operating income is up from a loss of 4.9 billion yen, or 48 million dollars, to 7.8 billion yen, or 77 million dollars. And Square Enix cites Final Fantasy XIV, of all things, as um, the the game that made the most money this quarter. Uh, sales of subscriptions of Final Fantasy XIV and Realm Reborn were massive prop, profit drivers for the company over the last nine months, which seems to be single-handedly keeping them afloat. Which, to be fair, when Final Fantasy XI came out and was shockingly popular as well, that also kept the game aflo- the company afloat after kind of their flops at the time as well. No, to be fair, it was it's surprising simply because Final Fantasy XIV was such a train wreck. Oh yeah, no, that is the, that is the part that is hilarious is that people said, "Oh, this first this first version of a game which was an utter nightmare had broken controls, missing content, and was so bad so bad they gave it away for free." And then ended the game with the universe being destroyed by a flying dragon. Um, so they could reboot it and charge you money this time. Yeah, um this is a massive success somehow. Yeah. Yeah, um, console games like Tomb Raider are also old part of the do as well, but so are games like Sengoku Iksa and Kakusansei Million Arthur, uh, a PC browser game and smartphone game, respectively, that presumably operate on microtransactions. Which, I mean, this kind of sucks, because <laughs> these are games with subscription fees and microtransactions that are building the bulk of the company. I would have been really happy if, like, Tomb Raider played a bigger role in this because then they could stop treating Ido like junk. Yeah. Um, you know, or maybe Deus Ex made them some money. Considering they've released Deus Ex and Tomb Raider two times each. I, I can't I, I'm like for and with very little pretense as to why. I right. Mean, it's we don't have a lot of money, you're buying this twice. Uh, I, I man, I don't know. It's Final Fantasy fourteen is a fine game. It's from what the reviews have said, it's plenty. I know okay. plenty of people who really enjoy playing that game almost every day. I'm just a, it's amazing that a subscription based MMO is making anybody money at this point. Apparently, like a significant portion of just Japan is playing Final Fantasy fourteen. It's the most popular MMO or one of them in because the... Dragon Quest Dragon Quest ten is awful. Yeah, that's probably it. I wouldn't be surprised if everyone just jumped off Dragon Quest ten, which is. By the same company, yep. On two, tra- which makes this even more kind of crazy. <laughs> on to dra- into Final Fantasy fourteen. Yeah, um, but we had another strong uh, yeah, it's, launch. It's a uh, it's post quarter. It's it's a uh, end of the quarter, so it's a lot of financial news this week. Uh, Disney Interactive, uh, after a very strong launch for Disney Infinity, uh, Disney Interactive is getting ready to lay off over a hundred employees this week. 
Yeah, that's weird. Um, the layoffs are nothing new for Disney Interactive because they come every year and are expected to come out uh, after the company's quarterly financial results. Um, Disney spent over $100 million on Infinity, which by all accounts was a massive hit. It's probably been the biggest things that Disney, Infinity has put out, uh, Disney um, Interactive, Interactive has ever put out. Oh, it's purely anecdotal. I think we have some stats later, but I remember going to Toys R Us the day after that game came out and the shelves were bare. No, and people th- ate that game. It managed to not only to stop Skylanders from Activision, but I mean, completely, cha- completely make the landscape of uh, the buy a toy and add it to your game a widespread and viable. Yeah, it option. wasn't. It wasn't. This wasn't a weird thing Activision was doing anymore. It was a viable business plan that everybody should start looking at. Yeah, so former president, so the, now the basic loser of this was Disney's Playdom social gaming platform, which uh, has been a problem for the company since it launched. I mean, to be fair, uh, Disney hasn't had a great job online um, generally, but uh, former uh, Disney Interactive president John Pleasance, who left the company in November, says Play- Playdom was still challenged and needed to be more aggressive. Um, Disney Interactive has had a long history of just falling on its face. They yeah. tried to bring all development inside after a bunch of their games flopped. Um, that didn't work initially. And if Disney Interactive, Disney Infinity did not succeed, um, it's we pretty... Probably wouldn't be see- we pro- Disney Interactive probably wouldn't have existed at this, at point. this point to talk about. Um, Infinity actually made $16 million of profit for Disney Interactive in the third quarter, which is actually their second profitable quarter ever. I mean, basically expect to see like see more out of Infinity and less out of social gaming of Disney Interactive as they work towards profitability. It's been a long time, yeah. um, but uh, well, they, look, they finally made something that is selling gangbusters. Which is why you're going to see a ton more of it. Wall Street Journal reports that Marvel and Star Wars versions of Infinity are in development, which are going to print so much money. We don't know if that means, like, games on their own or just toys you can use with a standard Infinity set. Um, but either way, uh, Iron Man is coming to... Iron Man is coming to Disney Infinity, and you will open your wallet for him. You know what? I can already, like, punch Jack Sparrow with the with Mike Wazowski. Yeah, which is a pretty solid game already. Yeah, so, I mean... But if, the... I can pun- if, but if I can punch Gambit <laughs> with Darth Vader... That's my game of the year. That's pretty solid. I think I'd be going more for um, Gambit being punched by cars, <laughs> just having him just run. Just by Lightning McQueen, just yeah. run him. I just kind of want a train of people trying to beat up Gambit. <laughs> Maybe an actual train from the from the upcoming Disney movie Train. Yeah, a train runs over Gambit, then a car runs over, and then the train backs up, and then the car backs <laughs> up, and they do it again. I just don't like Gambit very much. <laughs> so that's it for news this week. Uh, but Tuesday marked the start of our second theme month. We already have our introduction up on love. Yes, February is all about love in games and love for games. Uh, I will have updates every week on the site, and I won't sleep on it like I did this week. But on the show, we're starting with a passion for games. That's a passion to make games, or a passion that led to a game, or a passion for a game. This first story takes place in a New Mexico desert in the wintertime. It was told to us by Jason Oda. Every year, he ventures out to the middle of nowhere to take his mind off the busy world of New York. Basically, I do so. I do one in in the winter, mm-hmm. uh, and then I do one in the summer. And the summer one is to the Midwest. Uh, the last one I went to Detroit uh, because I wanted to see how awful Detroit is because everyone's talking about it and whether it was really that awful, kind of a thing. And then I always go to to Iowa too. I have this sort of love for for Iowa because I like to go to places where there's basically nothing. And when I'm when you're on vacation and you do and you do basically nothing, it's really great because you get to actually think about your life and what you're doing with your life and yourself and what's important. Whereas if you go to like Vegas and you're partying the whole time, it's it's like this thing, but you never really get a chance to kind of step away from your your life and look at it. And I'm just the type of person that likes to do stuff like that. It's usually just like you know sit in a field or like sit under a bridge or you know, uh, look at abandoned gas stations and take pictures of them. So I can't really say I do that much. Like, and occasionally there'll be like a friend that I can visit out there and, you know, we'll have dinner or whatever, or just hang out and have some, have some beers or whatever, but not a hell of a lot. But last year he went on vacation with a purpose in mind and came out of it with a game called continue nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. 
The game's exploration of death. You play as a soldier in a game who, after losing his last life, has to venture through random access and memory before being deleted. And that's a change of pace for Jason, because his last game was called Skrillex Quest, which was a dubstep RPG based on Zelda. But Continue comes from this one trip to New Mexico, some Peruvian drugs, and a long walk in the cold. Take it away, Jason. Uh, yeah. So I had a, I had this friend, and she had arranged for me to do this Peruvian jungle drug. And basically this was, I had to drive up to Colorado to do this. And it's just this cabin full of hippies, basically. Like, everybody's wearing, like, these... Lots of beads and lots of things that jingle. Uh, you know, it, it takes forever to kind of get going, but there's about 30 people in the room, and then there's about there's a shaman who is this you know guy from Peru that kind of mixes mixes up the, the stuff, and um, then you have people who are sort of guides to make sure that you don't freak out while you're on it. it they, they have like incense burning, and the incense has this way of when it like a gust of incense hits your nose it makes a, a sound in your ears it, or it did at least for me when i was on the ayahuasca that this the smell translated into noises in my ears um and it's you know it's very dark the whole time and no one's allowed to talk there's also people sort of playing music and singing um in this very weird trippy way and it's very smoky and then over the course of the night you sort of just drink this salty muddy brown liquid and uh you're supposed to do like two doses of it and you go you kind of roller coaster between these violent bouts of uh, extreme uh, pain and vomiting and like needing to like diarrhea just feeling awful and then your body kind of relaxes and you have these like just really sort of uh, cathartic moments of, of bliss and peace and you also ang- you, you know you go between anger and happiness and you, you roller coaster in all these different sorts of ways and it kind of feels like you also roller coaster between being sober and drunk every 30 seconds, and uh, it's just this very just sort of trying but really great, beautiful sort of a thing. And I ended up doing a, like a I ended up doing four on my first time, which is kind of like a, just way too much. But I wanted to make sure that I experienced everything that there was to experience, and so I I really kind of went out of my mind at, at a certain point. When people talk about, I, I don't believe in anything like past lives or any like stuff like that. But when people talk about like, you know, how they think they have past lives, you definitely kind of have these visions. I had a vision that I was like a Chinese guy, which chances are, if you had a past life, you probably were a Chinese person, given the population of the world and stuff like that. I had a dream that I was a like this sailor, and these sharks were eating my crewmates and, and these things. And but you know, one of the main things that I had, and this is getting back into the game, uh, finally is that there was like this phrase that got stuck in, in my head and it had a lot to do with the road trip I was on and it had a lot, a lot to do with just um, uh, things that were kind of going on in, in my life. But uh, this drug sort of made this phrase repeat over and over in my head and this, this phrase was in one of the interstitials in the game and the phrase is, it's so hard to find a good field to lie face down in. user who doesn't know the backstory behind it can kind of just if they're if they're of this mind they can kind of you know get their own interpretation of what that might mean and I guess for, for me what it means is just um, you know it's, it's just hard to find a place in this world to sort of feel at peace and, and, and to feel um, you know like one with the universe or whatever not that I believe in any of that stuff but um, just that that's sort of a feeling and that phrase to me really resonated over and over in my head so this is like this is like a, I think like a day or two later, um, roughly. I mean, you don't sleep the whole night, so it's kind of hard to say, you know. But um, so I was driving through New Mexico, and this was, you know, I'm still sort of basking in the glow of all of this, you know, great stuff that I've been experiencing through this through this drug. I'm definitely 100% sober at this point, but driving through New Mexico in these very sort of barren places. It was just one of the most beautiful days of driving I've ever had in any of the road trips I've ever been on. You have, you know, you know, herds of animals running next to your car. And, you know, you, you're just in the, these beautiful hilly landscapes. It's not necessarily desert. And then it kind of goes up into the mountains. And it's, it's just, it's all so gorgeous. And, you know, cliffs and the sun is reflecting off the cliffs. And they're, they're, they're painted all these colors. And it's really amazing. Well, I went to this place called Gila National Park, which is sort of western 
uh, New Mexico and, and it's up in the mountains. So it's, you know, it, it, you see snow and stuff like that. And it's basically got forest. There's some snow. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit cold. So it's not necessarily the desert or anything like that. And I went 150 miles into this, uh, into this national park. And it's just a dirt road, just a single kind of dirt road. And not a whole lot else. I didn't see a single person the whole, the whole time. And it's very windy and, and, you know, pretty pretty bad. And at a certain point, I knew that I was getting closer to civilization, but I saw this horrific thing. And I just, basically, I was just going down this road, and there was just a road closed sign of the way ahead, which is pretty much the only road, the only real road ahead. So I kind of freaked out and panicked because I didn't, I couldn't go back the way I came because I had less than half a tank of gas. And, uh... So I decided to take the side road that I had just seen 100 miles back. And by the way, there was like this dead cow stuck in a, a, a cattle grate that had been picked bone dry. You know, had been picked to the bone basically by animals. It wasn't a good sign exactly. And I went down this road and my car ended up getting stuck in the snow about four, four miles into it, which is no surprise because the road was just... And basically after sort of weighing my options and thinking about what I could do, the only thing I could really do was basically just try to walk down that closed road uh and i was just really scared you know you're up in the mountains and you know you know that you're really far away from people and you know if anything happens no one's ever going to find you um and you know i i couldn't get the car even even if i could get the car stuck uh, unstuck in the snow i didn't have the gas to go back so really the only thing i kind of could do was just to walk down that closed road and hope that it was all right so uh i just very scared and I walk I walk back to that closed road and you know it turns out the road is closed for a really good reason because the road is just basically covered in ice and snow and it's really in very rough shape there are parts where it just kind of dissolves and you can barely even see it and at a certain point there was like there, you know this mountain lion just kind of walks out 10 feet in front of me and is looking at me in the night and I'm you know basically in the, in the mountains it's actually this so this is nighttime but it's very bright in the mountains because the moon and the stars and just it's very clear up there so you can see everything this mountain lion kind of walked in front of me and just looking at me um, so I just kind of was slowly very slowly backing off and getting ready to to ditch my backpack and, and looking for a tree to jump up uh, if it kind of went after me you know in any way you know I was just very scared I was scared of the whole situation you're walking out in the wilderness in the dark and the snow and a lot of this stuff is, is uphill and you're going like two miles per hour at best but luckily I mean I guess a mountain lion won't really attack you. I don't know. That's what they say. I just kind of walked and walked and walked, and I had snow to eat, and I had like a little bag of granola and stuff like that. And I, uh, I managed to kind of make it about, you know, uh, about 25 miles, somewhere, somewhere in that range. And my legs were just basically dead at this point. And you sort of think like, oh, people run marathons, and you know, uh, 25 miles doesn't sound that bad. But I, I don't know. For me, I'm in. I'm in decent shape and my legs were just, they felt broken by the time I walked 25 miles. I don't know how people run it at all. I just saw a flashlight in the dark and it turned out that there were these college kids just camping in the woods and they, they kind of, I screamed out to them and scared the shit out of them. And uh, it was, you know, you just see that one flashlight and you realize that you're, you're, you're saved and you're going to be okay. And then they, finally kind of uh you know rescued me and and they drove me back to to this town and i i was not dead and and i felt very grateful to be to be alive you know and um you know i call this a, a brush with death basically but maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't so bad but to me I, it was pretty scary and it was the type of thing you go through and you it's another thing that just kind of makes you reassess certain aspects of, of your life and then basically the next morning my legs were just just useless. I could barely walk, uh, but I could sort of shuffle along, and I managed to basically ask this guy who owned the cabins to to drive me back up into the mountains, and I had to give him like six hundred bucks to do it to get the car and pull the car out and do all this stuff. And you know, it took all day, so you know. Um, but you know, we, you know, I talk with the guy and he tells me about his life, and you know, uh, he's like one of these gristled hunting guys, and he tells me his life story and his dreams and talk about almost dying and stuff like that and it's all, it was all right you know and they got the car out and so the, basically the last part of the story is that um i drove to 
this town called Clifton, Arizona after this. And Clifton, Arizona is my favorite town in the Southwest. It's probably my, my second favorite sort of like a dreamy little town in the whole country. It's like this very crumbling mining town and it's, it's in continue. It's in the game. Um, and it's this crumbling mining town and it just has this certain haunted sort of feel to the old part of the city. And there's, it's, it's sort of very abandoned and it's kind of like a ghost town, but there's still people there and there's still, the mine is still active. Um, but in the old part of the city, there's just these crumbling houses and it's just, it's just gorgeous. And the sunset hits it in a certain way. It colors the whole town. And there's just this like real sense of like holiness in the air almost. Uh, it's just something about it. And, you know, when you're on these road trips, you discover these little places and, and they become sort of sacred to you as you sort of return to them year after year. And I was there and I had like this conversation with my dad. My dad. Your, your father called you, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. He, on the phone, my father said, uh, you are our treasure. And at the time, it didn't really um, uh, it didn't uh, affect me all that much. Cause, but I, I don't see him be emotional at all. He's Japanese, uh, and he's a really nice guy. He's not he's not he's he's a great dad and everything like that. But he's not he's not very emotional. And he's not very um, you know he's just he's just like that. He's a dad, whatever you know. And then uh, I I basically at a certain point just went to the mining the miners bar, and it's all these sort of gristled old men and these women with these. Uh, hairstyles straight out of the 1980s and stuff like that. And uh, and uh, I, I just started drinking and thinking about my life and the experience and and uh, and then my, my dad and everything. And I just I, I sort of just had this breakdown, just this uh, ridiculous sobbing breakdown. And I'm, I, at this point, I still can barely walk, so I'm like crying and I'm like shuffling around trying to leave the bar. I just went into my car and, and just sort of let it all out. And uh, a lot of the things that you build up in your life at a certain point, they – you know, all the negativity that you build up in your mind, it sort of just all came kind of flowing out of me. It's epic road trip and all these different things happening leading up to this very sort of life-changing moment for me, uh, which made me feel, feel very much so alive and, and, and that life was beautiful and great. You know, I guess, I guess the thing that, that kind of made me break down at the bar was I was just thinking about these miners pulling this precious metal out of the ground and how that's treasure. And then just somehow, like, I think the metaphor and the, the, along with the, drinking of the tall boys and everything like that, just kind of all mixed in there to, to, to kind of, I don't know, make for this moment that just made me kind of break down uh, in my mind. And, and as far as the whole situation uh, was going and, you know, um, you know, it's one thing to survive, but it's another thing to know that like there's, there's people out there who, who care for you that much and uh, you know, that you're, you're sort of treasured to them. And so there's a lot of stuff, you know, in the game uh, in, in particular about, uh, um, this situation in the in the uh, the Clifton level, the the Clifton Arizona level in the game. There's there's some of these like little details, and and some of it just these random people that you meet kind of uh, in these towns, and whether they're miners or they're you know there's like these a big population of Mexican people there, uh, and they all sort of come together to make this very magical place to me um, that that is in the game. What was it? Do you, do you think that the game is effective at conveying kind of the experiences that you had? To, to to some degree, yeah. Um, I, I wonder if that's that's not. I think that for me, I didn't want to make a game that's like here's this thing that I went through. It was more like a what I wanted to do was to just open up this door for people to just think about um, these things. And so the, the game is about like a dead failed video game character, but it's sort of like a metaphor for you know and and it, this dead filled video game character has to face its its impending death and at the end no matter what you do you are erased and you, and you are you know you are nothing in the end uh, which is according to my belief sort of what happens to us um and i guess i just uh, I, I wanted people to just think about that a lot more and i think that <clears throat> something that i've been going through with with games is that uh I'm 35 now, and I have just a different viewpoint on games that I did 10 years ago. And I guess I, I guess in the way that you sort of you you grow up and you stop wanting to play with toys. For me, like I, I I've just been having that experience with games a lot lately, where I just can't get into anything, and I I can't really escape into these worlds in the way that I used to, and I can't really I can't really care because I I have this overwhelming sensation that. I just, 
I just sort of think, well, what does any of this mean? Who cares? Who cares if I, you know, uh, save the princess? Or who cares if I d- defeat this bad guy? Or who cares if, you know, I don't know, like I, I kill some people in Grand Theft Auto. It's just the games are really good and they're really well done. But I, there's just this other thing that I'm not connecting with. And I guess I just want some sense of meaning behind it or something deeper. And I... I, I get that from some games. Like I loved Gone Home, and I love Dear, uh, Dear Esther, and I, I love some of these other sort of indie gamey things that make you think these things. The response to continue has been mixed. There's been plenty of praise, but he's also had some criticism as well. Jim Sterling of The Escapist called the game long-winded, kind of pompous, and some of us may even venture to say it's bloody pretentious. Jason has a hard time seeing these reviews. Now, as you've kind of mentioned, I mean, there have been some reviews that have called the game a little pretentious um how have you taken that reaction i take it really really hard um and it's well the thing is is like you work on something really hard and it becomes your baby and you put your heart and soul into it and there's just going to be a certain certain people that's it's just not for and i try to do my best to kind of be like look this is like an art experiment and it's not for everybody and you know if, the, if it doesn't sound like this sort of a thing would be for you, like, please don't play it. Cause I, I just, I really genuinely don't have an interest in selling my game to people that I don't think have a chance of, of getting it. I don't want their money and I don't want them to hate me because I've, I've sold them this thing that is like Wreck-It Ralph and it's, it's not Wreck-It Ralph at all, you know? Um, and that's why the name of the game is so ridiculous is because if you look at my game and you go, the name of that game is ridiculous. There's no way I'm going to play it. That's good because you would have really hated the game if you were disgusted by the name of it. And then if you read the description of the game in the Steam page, and it seems like totally stupid and offensive and, and up its own ass and, and ridiculous, uh, that is another thing that will keep you from playing the game. Because I, I honestly, I don't have an interest in selling this to people who have no chance of getting it. And I get that it, it is a real like love or hate kind of a thing. And, you know, it's very hard on me to get those bad reviews because it's it's funny because IGN gave it like a 7.9, but then Destructoid gave it a 4.5. And it sort of just is one of these games, you know, I've gotten A's and F's over it. And it just depends on whether you kind of get it and whether you think it's dumb or not. And, you know, I, I definitely have been very depressed at times and driven up the wall over over these bad reviews because it's your baby. And, you know, you put your heart and soul into it and you put all this time into it and, you know, people shit on it and you also realize that making a game is this very maddening process especially when you're one person it just is this thing that i you know people rag on phil fish but i feel exactly like phil fish i feel like it making this game made me crazy and it definitely when people dissed it really just hurt me so much but i understand that's life that you're not gonna please all that people but and you and you want to say like uh Oh, you can't listen to what those people say, but it just gets in your head. And it gets in my head because I'm just that type of person. So, yeah, it's been it's been a lot. It's been very up and down. But then occasionally you get like a really nice email from somebody and, you know, it's nice. Jason Oda is a game designer living in Brooklyn. Continue 987-654-3210 and Skrillex Quest are available on Steam. So a good game can really get people riled up. We all know this. You'll find hyperbolic support on message boards or in comment sections of a review. But nothing gets people more riled up than an okay sequel to a great game. It feels like walking a hundred miles to get lemonade, only to get there and be told you can choose between a pair of shoes, some brass knuckles, or a cheeseburger. The current endings alienate their customers and destroy the replayability of the trilogy. We're talking, of course, of Mass Effect 3. Mass Effect 3 was the highly anticipated finale to the space role-playing game series. It came out in April 2012. It was supposed to wrap up all the plot lines, character arcs, and lingering mysteries to the series. 
But the ending was controversial to say the least. 91% of people who voted on a Bioware forum fan poll wanted an entirely new ending. Uh, we won't get into details, but... Yeah, I was kind of a brat about it. Uh, looking back on it, when it, uh, when it first occurred, when the grand mistake occurred, I, uh, liter- like I say it in the book, literally, I jumped right on Google, and I typed in Mass Effect 3 ending sucked. And then everything came up, you know, all other fans and stuff. Yeah, I had a pretty bad reaction. I was pretty... Uh, I was pretty irked. I invested a lot of time into Mass Effect, and then you get this tricolored mishmash of doom. Um, the reaction got so bad that Bioware went back and tried to change the ending to better satisfy people. It didn't work. But it gave others the idea that if Bioware could change the ending, why not anyone? My name is Jerry Puglisi, and I am the author of Mass Effect 3 Vindication. Jerry isn't a game designer. He works in online marketing and lives in New Jersey. But that didn't stop him from making his own 500-plus page monolith filled with concept art, multiple endings, and a complete revision of the game's final moments. It's called Mass Effect Vindication, and Jerry spent most of his free time since the game came out thinking about it. Quick warning about the following story. Uh, it may and probably does have spoilers. What was wrong with it um, from your standpoint? Yeah, like so one of the things, and I drive it home in Vindication, is I don't really like Shepard getting the option to kind of flip the script at the very last minute. Um, you have all these decisions and things that you make throughout the Mass Effect series. You live a certain, well, you in quotes, live a certain kind of life, you know, good guy, bad guy, kind of a middle ground guy. And then right at the end, you're given this opportunity to pick these three endings that don't really seem congruent with the way your character might have lived their life. That should have been kind of a crossroad that you don't get. You should have just been given something based on what you did. So I didn't like that option right at the end to kind of just go a completely different direction. That's probably what irked me the most. As Jerry alluded to, what made people angry about the ending were the choices. Throughout the trilogy, the player, as Commander Shepard, could make decisions that changed the game a little bit. It changed dialogue and appearances, but the fundamental story remained the same. At the end, people expected all of these decisions to culminate into something big. Instead, you were provided with one last choice, which, based on three colors, determined your ending. Huge fan, very invested in the game, obviously. I'm a writer by trade, I've been a journalist, I've done things like that. And I always like to have a writing project. Uh, I say in the, in the book that I have like a box of screenplays. They all suck, but I still have a box of screenplays. And I wanted to just try my hand at some different kind of fiction. So I said, well, let me let me see what I can do here. Maybe I can do a fan fiction thing. Because there's tons of fan fiction out there. I said, let me sign up at Twitter, and maybe I'll put some stuff out on Twitter, and maybe people get interested in my, you know, laborious writing. And um, then it kind of snowballed. The project started to get bigger and bigger, and then it kind of came apparent to me that maybe I could leverage this into maybe employment opportunities, either in the video game industry or any other kind of creative industry. Um and also, you know, again, kind of fill some time. So it was, you know, it was one to do fan service, to make something cool for the fans, some personal gamble, you know, maybe I can land a job. And hey, listen, we all need hobbies. It started with you wanting to correct, correct that ending, but mm-hmm. you have concept art, you have DLC in, built in there. How did you, how did it manage to balloon into this, the, what it is now? Well, it's mostly mental illness. That's what I would say first. But uh, no, it, <laughs> here's what happens. Mass Effect and any of these kind of super role-playing games where you have to make decisions are essentially a big basket full of variables. So just like, I guess, in programming or just like in life, that if you come to a decision where you have three choices, for example, and you pick one, well, that's a variable. And the other ones are variables, too, even though you didn't pick them. So when you change one variable in a formula or in whatever you're doing, it tends to spiderweb out pretty quickly. Uh, It's like you you throw a pebble at a piece of glass and it shoots out all these little fingers. That's kind of what happens. So best example I can give, well, there's an easy example and and a laborious example. I'll give you the the, the simple one. The simple one is keeping Anderson Counselor, for example. If you keep Anderson Counselor, you figure, oh, what do I just throw him in the clothes he wore in Mass Effect 2? Well, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But what about all the dialogue where he's referred to as Admiral? What about um, his, his military uniform? He's got to have the Citadel insignia on it. What do you do with, Ode- uh, with Udina? So variables just add up. You change one thing, and you're going to end up changing a billion other things. And then what you you have what I had to do is I said, well, am I going to ride these variables to the bitter end, or do I 
continue to fight temptation and not round off corners. And you work a nine to five job. Um, when were you making this? And like, how many hours did you put into this funny? Yeah. yeah. So this is like the crazy insanity and dedication to all this. So I work a nine to five. It's an hour away from where I live. So essentially, and I work, you know, I work till 5.30. So it's 9 to 5.30. So I get this extra half an hour, which is just lovely. So I have, what, 10 and a half hours of my day are occupied by the thing that paid for a Mass Effect 3 vindication. Um, in the morning, uh, well, really, here's how I, normally after work, I would go to a Starbucks and I'd work for about two hours. On the weekends, I would try to do five on Saturday, five on Sunday. Uh, basically work to the exhaustion. I took days off, but there was one period in time that my week was like this, Monday through Friday, I would get my butt to a more local Starbucks at 6 a.m., I would write till 8, I would go to my job, I'd be at another Starbucks right around 6.15 p.m., and I wouldn't leave there till 8.15, give or take, and on the Saturday and Sunday, I would probably put in a total of 10 hours of work. So wherever there was a free moment, I was sneaking it in. And while not playing the game, especially in the early phases of writing, I was playing Mass Effect in my downtime to take notes. So it was like 24-7 Mass Effect. I feel as if I'm in a relationship with Commander Shepard, quite frankly. Jerry isn't quiet about how he believes that this could be a way out of his job in marketing and into a job in game design. Well, in terms of move up, it would be like taking a rocket ship and hitting Mount Everest. <laughs> it would be it would be pretty significant. Yeah, and here's the thing, you know, on a, like on a personal note, my post college kind of career path has been very difficult. I haven't had really that many good jobs. Well, talk about your career path since uh, uh, in, in over the last uh, couple of years. Sure. So I graduated college in, in 2004, and I basically had a series of type of marketing assistant jobs. I was a little bit of a, a health blogger and a journalist for a while. Um, those things just didn't go anywhere. Uh, I think it's probably the economy. That's a, a big issue. I mean, I've been employed for you know most of that 10 year period, but um, just jobs that you can't latch on to, the jobs that you can't just go, oh, wow, this is great. I feel really good about the time I spent. And when I go to bed at night, I don't want to bash my head against the wall. And that, that's kind of what it is. It's just basically, to make it really simple, it's just been, I haven't had the best jobs. I haven't had jobs that I I've, uh, could see myself looking down the road and saying, oh yeah, I'll be here for 10 years, or I'm happy what I'm doing. But I don't think I'm, I'm alone with that. I think there's a lot of people that have jobs that they just, you know, they, they want more. And how, how has the reaction been for you? Uh, the reaction's been pretty, I'm going to be honest with you, pretty fucking humbling, not to use the F word, but pretty damn humbling. Um, I will say this, that the vast majority of the emails that I've gotten, and I've probably gotten over 100 at this point, have been overwhelmingly positive. What about the author? I mean, they, Bioware put out, I mean, they even put out a revision to try to please fans. Mm Um, I mean, where do you think your, um, that vindication fits in within that? Well, there's a section in the introduction where I talk about the artistic integrity and artistic vision. And that was one of the more popular arguments supporting, other than saying fans are stupid, that was one of the uh, more popular arguments to kind of explain what Bioware did. And it's it's one of these things where it that, that argument is not so great because you anything can be anyone's artistic vi- artistic's vision. Um Anybody's, you know, you, the Mona Lisa is somebody's artistic vision, but there are lots of people out there that think it's ugly and it's horrible. So an artistic vision can still stink. Uh, what Bioware created, listen, you, at the end of the day, I think is unsatisfactory for the epic conclusion of a game trilogy. Is it an okay game by itself? Yes. But is it good to be the final chapter of Shepard's story or Mass Effect as we know it? No. Uh, as far as where my thing fits in, it's a tough question to answer because obviously Mass Effect Revindication is never going to be brought to life. It's never going to be made a patch. It's never going to be made a DLC, and it's never going to be applied to Mass Effect 3. So whatever I say is kind of has to be taken with a grain of salt. But to me and to a lot of fans that have read the project and have a very good knowledge of Mass Effect 3 and can mentally apply what I did on top of what Bioware created, you walk away with a more fulfilling experience. And um, you know, one of the things I say in the book that a lot of people have uh, accused me of being arrogant and have really scared me over is that I say I did a better job than Bioware if you take what I did and put it on top of Mass Effect 3. In fact, I say I did an entire, I did a better job than the entire staff of Bioware, which is the same as saying I did a better job than Bioware. And I feel that way. 
You know, I have to be confident in what I created in Mass Effect Vindication. And if you brought to life Mass Effect Vindication with everything it has, its endings, its, its the additions and revisions and subtractions, and then compared it to Mass Effect as we know it, you can't compare it to. Mine is vastly superior. Um, and you know, I have, I have emails to support it. Now, how would you feel if someone went and make it made a elaborate revision of Vindication the same way that you made an revision of Mass Effect 3? I'd love to read it. I mean, that's the beauty of it. A lot of people that have emailed me, um, they didn't do necessarily that, but they had comments and questions and, and, and things they didn't like and, and things that they would want to see different. And the beautiful part about that is they're entitled to do it. And their story has just as good a chance as anybody's to become successful and to become good. So yeah, if somebody wanted to do that, I'd be more than happy to read it. And then what I would probably do is then do a revision of their revision of my thing. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem, man. Jerry Puglisi is the creator of the alternate ending to Mass Effect 3 called Mass Effect 3 Vindication. You can find a link to it on our website. Uh, that's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Agbali. And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Plague with me the help of... Jason Oda. And... Jerry Puglisi. For an extended version of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. Remember to leave a review on iTunes so we know how we're doing, and more people can find the show. But if you uh, leave a negative review, we'll pretend to be deaf and burn your house down. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m., and we run every Monday and Thursday, also at 1 p.m. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, Can Love Bloom Even on the Battlefield? This week, a primer on some lovely games. And we update the website with our show every Sunday and uh, with these articles throughout the week. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarcon. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen, and I might not actually be deaf. Thank you so much for listening.